Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The idea that Democrats were going to stay home, that's not happening. I mean, we're voting at incredibly high levels all across the country. Simon Rosenberg has a message for jittery Democrats on the eve of the midterms. Cheer up. Simon has been involved in Democratic politics since the Dukakis campaign in 1988. In The War Room, the documentary about Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, you can see Simon popping up in a few shots. He even helped the DNC get online via CompuServe, the pre-World Wide Web computer service. And of course, even then when we went online, it was still full of right-wing trolls just attacking us, right? Even then, it was unbelievable. Since 1996, he has run the progressive think tank NDN, which studies new political trends and advises Democrats. But in the last two years, Simon has become something else. The Democratic Party's apostle of optimism. Last year, when the economy was showing signs of worsening, Simon made a point of taking to Twitter and emphasizing all of the data that pointed in the opposite direction. And now, in the home stretch of 2022, he is best known for his similarly cheery data analysis about what is going to happen on Tuesday. I'm not sitting here and telling you we're going to win. I'm not predicting that. What I'm telling you is the narrative about this election, about there being a red wave, there isn't one. There never has been. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. If you spend a lot of time on political Twitter, you have no doubt encountered Simon's tweets and threads over the last few weeks. He has built a large and loyal following of Democrats looking for silver linings amid the clouds of negative media coverage about their party's prospects in the midterms. Hispanics abandoning his party? Simon says that NDN's polling doesn't show it. Polling averages tilting to the GOP in the last few weeks? Simon says they've been polluted by a barrage of Republican polls dumped strategically to depress Democrats and excite Republicans. And that red wave? Simon says that if you look at the Kansas abortion referendum, the five House special elections earlier this year, and especially the early voting data, that the anti-Trump coalition that powered Democrats to victory in 2018 and 2020 is holding strong in 2022. I caught up with Simon at the storied Cafe Milano, a favorite Georgetown hangout for senators, congressmen, media types, and lobbyists. It's also just the kind of place that you'd want to go on a warm fall day to talk politics over an alfresco lunch. Let me have the halibut. I'm going to get this pasta here. Except for the loud rumble of machinery and trucks at a construction project going on across the street. You may hear that and a few other sounds of city life throughout the interview. We haven't had a siren. We're almost there. We've almost checked every box. Last week, we heard from a Republican strategist who made the case that a red wave is coming. Simon is going to give us the other side of that debate. I have this 
very strong belief that the biggest question in this election was always going to be, would the anti-MAGA majority that voted in such overwhelming numbers in 2018 and 2020, two very high turnout elections, which we won by an average of six and a half points, and Republicans lost the House, the Senate, and the presidency in those two elections, would that anti-MAGA majority show up again? and keep the Republicans and MAGA from power, you know, one more time, given that now the Republican Party has fully embraced MAGA as their new governing ideology, has shedded what we knew as modern conservatism for this new governing ideology. And the second question I I always had was, um, you know, because I wrote my first column about what what we're all now calling the decoupling of the Biden approval rating and the congressional generic in November of last year, a year ago, I noted that there had been a decoupling and that what I posited was that this was a bad sign for the Republicans because it showed that there was a MAGA hangover, that there was a resistance for all these people that had just voted against MAGA twice. It was going to be very difficult for them. They may be disappointed in Biden, but they weren't going to go running towards a radicalized extremist Republican Party, which they had just voted against twice, right? So I posited a year ago that this meant that this was not going to be a normal midterm and that the Republicans were going to have a hard time taking advantage of the disappointment in the Democrats and Joe Biden if that continued. So that would they, they, they will split tickets. They will make a distinction. Yeah, or just think think about it this way. I mean, it means that you could be disappointed in Joe Biden, but no way are you going to vote Republican, right? And because they're crazy or they're extreme or whatever, right? And so I always... So the traditional indicator of presidential approval is not necessarily the end-all, be-all number to tell us about the midterms. And what I argued then and what I've been arguing since is that this was not going to be a typical midterm. That because this and because of January 6th, because of Trump, because of MAGA, nothing is like it was. I mean, the idea that people were orienting themselves to believing that despite everything that had happened, this was somehow going to follow traditional political physics when 2020 didn't even follow traditional political physics. Right. You know, I mean, we lost we lost seats in the House while winning the Senate and the presidency. It's only happened one other time in American history. Right. Yeah. Is that. I just never believed in an age of Trump that things were going to follow traditional political physics because he doesn't follow traditional political physics. And and so the second big insight I had was that we did a set a series of polls in May of Hispanic voters in Arizona, uh, Nevada and uh, Pennsylvania. And I, I sort of pulled the old Indian Hispanic team back together because there's been a lot of questions about what's happened with the Hispanic vote. And we just didn't know, and we wanted to learn. We were, you know, old. So a bunch of the, my old colleagues that have worked on, you know, as you may know. I mean, I was the person who introduced bilingual polling to the Democratic Party in 2002. I introduced Hispanic Spanish language advertising to the Democratic Party. So I helped create our modern strategy towards the Hispanic community. And so I wanted to get data, fresh data that I could trust. And so we did a series this is of after a lot of. A narrative that, and some truth to it, that Republicans were doing better. Yeah, we're fleeing, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Hispanics were fleeing the Democratic Party is the way it's being represented, right? So, yeah. which I just doubted. I always had doubts about because why, of all the moments to run towards the Republican Party, is the time when they're doubling down on racism and xenophobia and, and nativism and all the things that they were doing. And just as somebody who's worked in this community for two decades, I just found this to be an odd time for this to actually be happening. It didn't mean that it wasn't happening, yeah. but I just needed to learn more. So we did three polls, and what we found was 
Democrats outperforming our 2020 numbers with Hispanics in all three states, and our candidates doing really, really well. And this, this was completely contrary to the media narrative. And then I thought, if we're seeing this with Hispanic voters that are much more democratic than is what people anticipate, what are we seeing with everybody else? And so I started spending a lot of time on 538, looking at the publicly available data at the time. Yep. And the truth is, a lot of people, I think, got caught in this election because we, because there were so many late Republican primaries, there was a lot less polling than there usually is, right? And the, and so the, this a idea lot less of general the, election polling? Yeah, a lot of gen- there was far less state-based polling, right? You know, and a, you know, where's Pennsylvania, where's Michigan, whatever, because there were very late primaries, and so there just wasn't any polling. So I think the media narrative and the political pundit class got very stuck on this idea of Biden approval rating down, inflation's high, red wave, right? There was universal belief this is what was happening. My polling showed that wasn't happening. And so I was like, whoa, what's going on here, right? And so I went and looked at 538 and found that of all the publicly available polling, Democrats were doing actually much better everywhere than was the conventional wisdom. And also we knew by the end of May, once the road, the Dobbs decision got leaked, that we started seeing a new phase in the election where the mass shootings, the ending of Roe, and the radicalization of the Republican Party was going to get reintroduced in a very powerful way, potentially reawakening this anti-MAGA majority. And so I wrote a piece prior to Roe ending saying there's no red wave. You can't see it in the data. I didn't think it existed in the data. I don't think there ever was a red wave, by the way. And then what's really important for your, your listeners is then we then had actual elections after Roe ended, not polling. And elections matter more than polling. And we had five House specials, and we outperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points in those five House specials. And in Kansas, it was by 20 points. And in every one of those cases, the polling didn't predict any of this. And if you know, Ryan, because you talk to Republicans all the time, they all told us that New York 19 was in the bag, it was cooked, and they got beat by two and a half points. And so, to me, that was a sign that the election had really fundamentally changed, and we were in a very different election, and where Democrats were overperforming expectations, overperforming polls. And the question then became for me, the next big question was, would that strong Democratic overperformance carry over to the general? We know Republicans are going to vote in big numbers. Will the anti-MAGA majority, will the Democrats vote in big numbers? That's the big question. Yeah. All right. The post-Dobbs period and the special elections that provided such a boost of optimism for Democrats and the period in the late summer when some campaigns were being advised, some Democratic campaigns were being advised to spend 80, 90 percent of their TV budget on abortion rights. I think most analysts do agree with you that that changed the conventional wisdom dramatically. Every election analyst wrote a piece during that period saying Democrats could hold the House. All the Nates, <laughs> everyone. At, uh, Trust me, I, you know, yes, I'm aware of all this. Right? You're probably banging the drums, calling uh, yes, them, telling uh, them to write it. Yeah, I was, I was helpful <laughs> but, in some of those stories. But everyone agreed. I, th- I think there was a general agreement. And then what happened, and I think where you differ from the current narrative, there was a public polling-led change in the conventional wisdom when abortion, partly because Republicans were very 
effective at uh, abandoning the most extreme positions on abortion and putting Democrats back on their heels about uh, whether it was a series of, of, of still high inflation uh, reports or bad economic numbers or just what a lot of people think was perhaps the the end of that 99-day period where gas prices were go- going down, you had a change in the in the political environment again, which put people back into the full-on red wave narrative. So look, I want to, but you, you still are standing on the shore, not seeing the red wave, right? So that's where I think the uh, yeah, the, the that's where uh, this gets really interesting. That's where it gets interesting, <laughs> and, and then there's the shift between the the conventional wisdom and the and and Simon wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would disagree with your analysis of the summer, but why is everyone else wrong that, that things have changed again? So let me start with this basic idea that the big question in front of us is, yeah. would this strong Democratic overperformance of our 2020 numbers... That showed care- up in the special elections. Five special races as disparate as Alaska, Nebraska, New York, Kansas, right? Right. Would that carry over to the general election? And one of the things we know is that post June 24th, the the voter registration numbers where we have that information showed a dramatic change in becoming far more female and far more young across the entire country. This was a a wave, if you want to call it. I mean, I hate that term, but it's what term everyone's using. Yeah. Showing and what that's an indication of is intensity. Right. So there were indications that this intensity that we saw was carrying on, but just in a different way. Right. And remember, the New York 19 special was not all that long ago. Right. It was just, you know, it was it was uh, just a few months ago. It wasn't six months ago. It wasn't a year ago. Right. Okay. Yeah, sure. And and um, and the DCCC polling in that race had us losing by three to four points and we won by two and a half points. And so we were overperforming our own polling. Right. Yeah. And so. The question I have, and I think the question that's unresolved, actually, is... Just, a, just one question. Yeah. And, and usually when you're overperforming your own polling, it's because your modeling is a little... Your, your modeling is probably too Republican. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Right. And even our polling, as part as an overcompensation for what happened in 2020, a lot of the Democratic pollsters have been, you know, putting a lot of Republicans in our samples because we didn't want to get burned again by the shy Trump voter or whatever happened in 2020. Right? Yep. So the shy Trump voter theory is this dark cloud hanging over the entire Democratic, you know, you know, establishment. Right. Yeah. And frankly, for many reporters, too, who felt that they got too far out there and they've been very conservative, which is, I think, another reason why the red wave thing became very comfortable for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. So I think that. I'm going to say two things. So one is, I think a lot of political commentators got very invested in the red wave in the spring and were not happy when there was no longer a red wave. And I think there was pridefulness and there was political reputation issues involved in this. And so I do think that a lot of people in our business have been desperately hoping the red wave came back so that they didn't look like they blew their election commentary, right? And... um, and the second, and so they've been looking for red shoots, right, as opposed to a ray, wave or whatever you want to call it. The second thing, and by the way, I've been here for so long that I just don't care anymore, right, about any of that. Right, right, yeah, right now. And so uh, the, second, the second thing is that I think the question about whether or not the 
the the strong Democratic overperformance is showing up would show up in the general election. I think is now an open question. I don't. I don't think. I. I have a different take on the way you phrase it. it. Is that it's not. I just don't think we know. And here's why we don't know. And what I'm doing is. So a lot of what you're doing is pointing out that this is still a a strong possibility, and here's some evidence. Well, and the evidence is pretty overwhelming, actually. All right. Let's let's go through that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, let me let me let me go through that. Is that so? And I actually put out a newer version of it just this morning. And just as a, I think the most important thing we can do as journalists, our job should not be to predict. It should be to offer the yeah. range of possibilities. Right, right. And and and, 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 and I'm not we, predicting anything. And we like to it. predict one thing. Yeah. Red wave, no blue wave. Yeah. It, it would, you know, it's much more makes a lot more sense to inform listeners and, and readers with the with the range of possibilities. Right. And and I think I think that the the idea that the Democrats had this very strong overperformance has been sort of wiped away from the collective memory right. of journalists. Right. And, and that that's no longer within the it's range like that of outcomes. The, right. That was like that yeah. happened before, yeah. like three years ago, right? Yeah. As opposed to like two months ago. Right. right. You know, and, totally and fair. yeah. And so I think the open question in front of all of us now who are looking at data is what is actually really happening in this election? And and nothing by the way, I want to be very clear that I've just followed the data. Like, I, I don't have an opinion about an election. I, this is my 17th election cycle working in democratic politics. I've been on both sides of waves and been on winning presidential campaigns, losing presidential campaigns. I know what it's like, right? And you, the yeah. key is that every election is unique and you've got to fo- the way to understand what's happening in an election is you have to follow the data of this election, not assume that it's going to follow traditional political physics, which is the most lazy kind of journalism possible, right? You mean just to say it's the first midterm? Yeah, whatever. And so he's going to lose? Come on. He, yeah. I mean, it was just silly, that kind of commentary. I mean, every election's unique. Every election has its own contours. I mean, even the issue around there being a dearth of traditional polling over the summer was what one of the things that made this election different, right? And, and, it's, and even some of my dear friends, who people who I've been talking to for... 20 or 30 years, I think, sort of took a very lazy path. And, and, and in an age of Trump, you can't be lazy, right? Like, everything is different and new all the time, right? Like, we're dealing with a very different kind of world that we're living in, right? So, long story short, here's what I see today. Yep. What I see today is that the strong Democratic overperformance we saw is carrying on to the general election. And I don't think there's any dispute about that any longer. Because uh, we now the, have, we the, now have. What's the best evidence for that? Yes, yeah, right so the best evidence of that is that we have a mountain of early vote data. Thirty million people have voted. So I have you, to tell you, the early vote stuff. As soon as I hear early vote, I think about being burned like a million cycles. That's okay. That's because okay. The early every time I. Yeah, but let me explain. Let see, me, yeah. do you know how many times the early vote analysis yeah. has been? I don't want to, this is that's just okay. a rant I have. Yeah, but that's I, okay. I always ignore, ever since, I forget what cycle was, I just, that's okay. as soon as I see start, someone start to say early vote, I'm like, you know what? I know. I'm aware. I'm aware of this. <laughs> anyway. Trust me. Trust me. I'm, I'm aware of this dynamic. And cause, cause, I'm sure you've been burned by it too. No, no, but I'm also, but, but the point is, is that where we have to get back to this very simple thing is that what is an election about other than people going to vote? And what you want is you want more people to vote for you than for the other side. And so what's happening is, for all of us election analysis, a lot of people are voting. So what are we learning from that? I'm not saying it's predictive. No one's saying that. But we have an immense amount of information about what's happening in this election. And we also, because early vote has been expanded, we actually, you know, early vote now is a much bigger percentage of the overall election. Right. And what's been interesting to me about this election, because every election is unique, is the data has been remarkably consistent 
for the last you know two weeks, right? There hasn't been any big spikes or big changes, either nationally or in states, which means that there's a pattern, right? The pattern is consistent. And here's what we're seeing, that Democrats are overperforming 2020 in almost every major battleground state, and in some cases by a substantial margin. So just if, if we go back to put it in perspective, as of this morning, looking back at the exact day four years ago, Republicans had a national vote lead in the early vote of 150,000 votes. We have a three million vote lead today. So this is a completely different midterm than the last midterm, right? Again, it's unique. Why? Because Democrats have really embraced open uh, early voting. We hit the Republican Party was the party of early voting in the past. That of us. course is going. That's that of course is the main response to this argument is that the two parties are now completely polarized on this issue. Yeah, yeah. It's become an article of faith among Republicans that somehow showing up on election day and voting is the only thing that is uh, patriotic, constitutional, and anything less than that is somehow uh, uh, heretical. Even though, you know, in places like Arizona that have a long tradition of early voting and other places where Republicans had these incredible early voting programs. Yeah and vote-by-mail programs, they, they've, Donald Trump has just, like, wrecked them. He's wrecked it, which was bad for the Republican Party. And but so, so why isn't that just the main explanation of all the early because, votes? Because, because if Republicans are so energized yeah. and they're so fired up and ready to go, yeah. why aren't they voting? And, and so... They don't trust early voting. I, I, no, I, I'm, that's a speculation. Yeah. That could be. Got it. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're now in the guess, the guess world. You're not in a data world. Yeah. we got to look at the data. Yeah. What the data is showing us is what, again, what is an election about? Getting more people to vote for you for, than the other guy. Right now, we're doing really good at that, yeah. actually. Yeah. We have three and a half mil, you know, 3.2 million more votes yeah. like, you know, than we had four years ago at this time. I'd rather be us than them. So right? to come back, let's put this in perspective. To come back from the deficit that you're seeing in the early votes, Say this continues for the next week. Yeah. Um, same trend line. What does election day have to look like for Republicans well, in, the sw- in these states? So let me let me go down on a little way- bit more data just to, to help people understand to paint the picture of the moment. It's not the election; it's the moment in the election. Right. S- yeah. Six days out, where we are. Democrats are overperforming compared to where we were in 2020, not in 2018. So in a polarized election. Yeah. And in fact, the national vote is remarkably similar in percentages to what it was in 2020. So this election is looking a lot like 2020, which is an election we won by four and a half points. Right? And by percentages, you mean early, the early vote? The share of the early vote that's Democrat and Republican. Yeah. So people understand that um, in states where there's both uh, a big early vote and partisan registration. No, we're doing this off of model data. partisanship. Got it. And so model partisanship, the way for your voters, I mean, your listeners to understand is simple things like, do you vote regularly in the Republican primary? Then you're a Republican, right? And so there's ways in the business to model partisanship based on voter behavior. And Target Smart, the firm that does, has the most comprehensive site, compares this day to 2020, this day to this day in 2018. That's uh, Tom. Tom Bonnier, who I've been collaborating with in this fun journey about the early vote. Yeah trying to get people to take it seriously. He's the other half of this uh, team of optimistic yeah. apostles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apostles of optimism. Well, he's, it's interesting his data, Tom, uh, he's yeah. not optimistic or pessimistic. He's a data guy, no, I, I, except the data's optimistic, right? That's the thing. So, and here's what we've learned, is that in many of the most important states in this, in this election, 
this is where Republicans, so if there was a red wave, yeah. you would assume that Republicans would be outperforming 2020, meaning just doing better than 2020, not yeah. 2018, right? 2020. And right now, Democrat Republicans are below their 2020 numbers at this point two years ago, six days out. So it's an apples to apples comparison because it's yep. the polarized Trump distortion of the mail and everything yep. else. They're down in Georgia, Iowa, Michigan, North Carolina, New Mexico, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, and Wisconsin. What's also important to recognize is that Democrats, so Democrats in those states, which are mostly important states, are overperforming our 2020 numbers like we did in the House specials. Same thing, right? Like we saw in Kansas, same thing. Like we saw in my polls in May, so same thing. If, but let me yeah. finish then. And then in, that, in current polling of high quality Senate polls, not the garbage Republican polls being dumped all over our, our system, Democrats are outperforming Biden in, in current polling in Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Iowa, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Outperforming so we're Biden. Biden's final number, his results. So we're overperforming in polling in the battleground states. We're overperforming in the early vote. We overperformed in the elections before. And what you see is a pattern of overperformance. What you also see is a pattern of underperformance by the Republicans. And if the Republicans were so fired up and they wanted to go knock us out, right? Why are they under 2020, right? And that's the problem for all of this analysis about assuming that the Republicans are more engaged and ready to vote when the data is actually showing us the exact opposite from that. So this is what, this is what you would expect to see if the special election uh, data were carried over. Carried over. We're seeing exactly what we thought we would see if the five House specials in Kansas data carried over to the general. It's overperformance. We're overperforming everywhere. There's only like four states in the country where we're below, where Republicans are outperforming you know, their, their 2020 numbers. So this data is scary to them. Michael Steele, former RNC chairman, reached out to me last night and yeah. said, you're right to be, who's a MAGA, an anti-MAGA Republican, of course, right? Of course, of course, Reached out to me and said, you're right to be promoting the early vote data. They have no answer to that, and it's a huge problem for them. What's been the response that you take most seriously from Republicans about this data, or well, to ask me, it another way, what do you worry? What worries you the most? Well, let me let me give you yeah. let me give you just one other confirming yeah, set of data. Right. The second thing is we have had the most recent youth poll done by Harvard IOP, the Institute of Politics, yep. showed they found vote intent for 18 to 29 year olds to be at or above 2018 levels, and us leading by 25 points. The electorate so far is very old. Those people haven't been voting that much. If they young voted, people have not. Yeah, the younger voters is down, particularly younger Republicans, by the way. Younger Democrats are down a little bit, but younger Republicans are way down. And if that youth vote, as Tom Bonnier keeps saying, is the big question that remains is how much of that youth vote comes out in the next week. If it comes out on a high level, CBS News predicted in their recent study they did, if, if youth turns out the way Harvard says, Democrats will keep the House and Senate. That was CBS said that, not me, right? So that's another thing in our favor. CBS said that uh, based on their last Based point. on, you know how they do this modeling of the yeah. House? They actually created a separate model for high youth turnout that had us keeping the House and Senate. The third thing I want to say is that we now have gotten a lot of Hispanic polling high quality Hispanic polling from Univision and Telemundo and also the national, some of the national polls 
all of them show us doing better with Hispanics than we did in 2020. All of the polls show us doing better. And in places like Arizona and in Nevada and in Texas, we're doing much, much better than we did in 2020. And so that's another sign that of overperformance, right? If you keep going down the list of overperformance, right? And then to me, the biggest tell today of all was Mitch McConnell's final ad buy, where three of the five states that he's choosing to play in are Republican-held seats. Two of them are North Carolina and Ohio. This is like the last 30, almost $30 million. That's that an over, that is a sign of Democrats overperforming. So no stretch races. states in that buy. There's no stretch states, and that's a sign, again, of overperformance. And so what you're seeing is, in all of this data, Right? You're seeing overperformance by the Democrats. There's a clear pattern. We're doing better than people expected. We're doing better than the polls had indicated, right? That some, some of the dirty, dark polls had indicated. And so when I look at all this, I think that, hey, look, we're going to have a good election. I don't know that we're going to win, right? I mean, it's going to be really close. But the idea that Democrats were going to stay home, that's not happening. I mean, we're voting at incredibly high levels all across the country, even with an older electorate. And so, you know, what's happened is that the way to think about this is that a lot of our older prime Democrats, the people who vote in every election, yeah. they voted right away. Right? Banked those. those and, and banked. The, right. They banked. But and, and one of the things that's really important for your listeners to understand is that this thing you hear out there, well, you're just cannibalizing your election day vote. Right. That's not a thing. And I want to dispel that myth. That's an urban myth. What happens in a campaign... What does that even mean, cannibalizing your so election day So the whole day premise vote. is you're just taking your, your election day vote moving and moving it, it early. Yeah. But what happens in reality, not in the fantasy world of right-wing talking points, is that when you do that, you're then freeing your massive campaign operation to go turn out lower propensity voters. Right. My job on the campaign is to turn you, you and Adam out here, sitting right. at this table. Once I, if I've done that in then October... You, right, or, or let's just <laughs> use today, right? We're yeah. six days out. Yeah. It means that Democrats are hitting lower propensity voters now. Right. Now Republicans I get assigned are, to someone who's not right. so likely. Republicans will yeah. start hitting them at 2 o'clock on Election Day afternoon. So what's happening now is because so many of our, what we call prime voters, have already voted, yeah. which was the goal, by the way. This was yeah. the plan. And the DNC spent $75 million building out these field organizations that are producing unbelievable early results for us all across the country, right? This was a plan. This was not an accident, right? There was a, we knew there was going to be early vote. We pushed it. And the reason we've embraced it is it means that we have a week now to turn out episodic and irregular voters as opposed to one day. That's a better way to win an election than what the Republicans chose. And so we feel really good about this early vote. It's very encouraging. I'm not sitting here and telling you we're going to win. I'm yeah. not predicting that. What I'm telling you is the narrative about this election, about there being a red wave, there isn't one. There never has been. It's never actually shown up. It didn't show up in the House specials. It didn't show up in Kansas. It isn't showing up in the early vote anywhere in the United States, right? And. What we are seeing is continued Democratic overperformance. What I think this means is that this is a very competitive election. It's really close. Yeah. And I think we're going to win a bunch of races that people didn't think we were going to win. And they're going to win some too, right? To me, one of the most interesting dynamics is you are seeing a big change between you know, the states where we're running ads and have these massive field operations as opposed to states like California, Oregon, Rhode Island that don't have the same level of investment. And yeah, that's works. where we could see some underperformance, surprising like underperformance. Right. California, we're under, early vote is a little down. Yeah. It's down in Oregon, right? So non-swing states, non-states without big Senate that campaigns. Didn't, well, that didn't have this big spend and this big campaign where we were able to more 
control the information environment, and yeah. frankly, where abortion mattered more than in heavily democratic states, right? Yeah. And so that's the case for optimism. Yeah. What I just went through with you is why I'm sitting here six days out and can say with you is that I don't really know what's going to happen next week. What I do know is there is no actual red wave. A red wave may come. It hasn't come yet. And in fact, you know, what we've seen is that we've seen repeated ongoing democratic overperformance in every way that you look at the data. I don't think people really understand. Let's just take Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. The Monmouth poll today had Fetterman up. The New York Times poll had him up five. Let's just say he's up three to four, right? Just to average sort of the good polls. Biden won that state by one point. That means we're doing three, two to three points better than 2020. In Arizona, we won that state by 0.3%. Kelly's up four to five points in most of the major real polls, not the, the fake polls. And so what we're seeing is even in the polling, yeah. we're overperforming 2020. And certainly McConnell's super defensive endgame here suggests that they don't have it in the bag and that they're actually worried. The other reason I think they're exhibiting fear and worry is in the way they've gamed the polling averages. There's been an unprecedented effort to flood the zone in seven yeah. states. All right, so this has to, been one of yeah. your more controversial takes. Yeah, and I'm happy to explain because it. Yeah. When I, I think when some people hear this, they think, all right. Conspiracy science, theory. He's, right. Yeah, he's, 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 he's the, remember the unskew the polls guy from a few cycles back? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but, that wasn't me. So, <laughs> no, I know that wasn't you. So I'm being facetious, but um, explain, yeah. explain uh, Explain your view on this. Your, your, yeah. your view is that the polling averages are being manipulated. Are being manipulated. They're being manipulated uh, by Republicans, and it's just obvious. It's like sky is blue stuff. More than half of all the polls taken in October in seven states are Republican polls, and at that point, nobody can trust the polling averages. I mean, historically, the way this would work, Ryan, is that in October there'd be you know one Democratic poll, two Republican polls, three media polls, right? Yeah. There weren't 12 Republican polls. Signal's done five polls in Ohio in the last three weeks, right? Yeah. And what you see, all you have to do go, is to go to 538 and just look at this. They dumped three polls in Pennsylvania last week showing Oz up by three points. The same number, by the way. All three of them had 48%. Boom, boom, boom on Friday. Okay, the election's changed because of the debate. And then everyone else's polls showing Fetterman up, right? And so... Look, I do this for a living, right? I know what they're doing. <laughs> and, and it's clear that there was a campaign, a very expensive, multi-million dollar media campaign to pollute polling averages to make the election look closer than it really is. Why would they do that? That's a sign that they actually don't think they were winning. Your argument is the, it was to change the narrative, positive news feeds, you know. Right, well, go back to negative positive sentiment that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, it was your guys, if your guys winning, it, j it jazzes yeah. people yeah. up, it gets them motivated. By the way, we know this yeah. from data. Yeah. Like, there's actual data about this. Like when Karl Rove in 2000 yeah. uh, said they were going to California. Right. Because he had this view that, you know, yeah. if you look like a winner, you'll be a winner at the end. We know from studies, if there's more positive sentiment in a race, you get more money, more volunteers, more enthusiasm. So what they were trying to do, going back to my comment at the very beginning, is they were trying to create more negative sentiment for Democrats, which has worked, by the way, because a lot of media organizations have bought into the fact that the red wave has returned. Um, virtually every interview I do now, the interview is starting from a very dark place about Democratic prospects, right? And so they've actually been very successful in creating massive amounts, probably tens of millions of dollars of negative sentiment at a critical time in the election. And so... What I will just say is that I didn't know what was to going dampen on. Dampen Democratic enthusiasm. Dampen Democratic as, yeah. enthusiasm. Yeah. 
to bolster their troops, right? Yeah. You know, Rick Scott's going out there saying, you know, we're going to win 52 seats when obviously McConnell's buy doesn't even contemplate that, right? They're just gunning up and just doing what they do, which is the party of the big lie lies about elections. That's what they do, right? What I would just say is that there's no question the Republicans could win the House and Senate. Um, but I would rather be us than them right now. And, and where I sit and what I look at, the data that I see, I'd rather be going into Election Day with four or five million votes in the bank than being down. I mean, look at John Ralston, right, who is revered as a political analyst and journalist. I was on MSNBC with him the other night, and I talked about this early vote. And he said, I agree with Simon. Everyone should be ignoring the polls. What matters now is the early vote. People are voting. That matters much more than the actual polls. And he's seeing that in Nevada. He's seeing big Democrats. He knows yeah. that just from the yeah. experience of being in a single state, yeah. how much the early vote actually is a window into what happens on Election Day. It's not a predictor. It's a window. It's a prism. It's a suggestion, right? It's a trend. Yeah. And so what we're seeing in the polling just in this week, there are the, a lot of the polls that have been negative. We've had some bad national tracks in the last couple of days. There's no question about that. We had very good national tracks last week. And that's why there hasn't been this sort of progression. I mean, things actually got really good for us last week. We had really good Senate polls. We had good national tracks. A majority of the national tracks last week were plus Democrat. A majority of the likely voter polls last week were plus Democrat. The political morning console poll that came out today was plus three Democrat, right? Yeah. So there is... That's the second week in a row. Right. The data's not all pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And that's why unless everything's pointing in the same direction, you don't have a trend. And there's conflicting data to the red wave meme. And so I think that what I think is going to happen is that the Republicans are going to have a very good election day. There's no question about it. But we're having a really, really good early vote, frankly, better than I think any of us anticipated. And so there's a lot of confidence on our side that, you know, we got a shot here. Fair. All right. Very persuasive. Um, let's talk a little bit about the issues and the the issues that both parties have tried to make the campaign about in the final days. The Democrats are back to a pretty traditional Social Security, Medicare, populist economic message with a heavy dose of warnings about what Republicans will do if, if, if they take power. I don't really think the election has been maybe you disagree, nationalized on, on either side? This is the most important thing that we've talked <laughs> and, about so okay. far. But let's, yeah. talk, let's talk about that. If you, if you could wave a magic wand and get Democrats to all talk about the, the, the same thing, what would it be? <laughs> Listen, it's a great question. And I, and I think one of the things we didn't talk about, and I'm, I have a group of folks who I talk to about the election all day long. Yeah. And one of the things we've You're been probably on Michael Pedozer's. Uh, no, I'm list. actually not. I'm in a different group. But okay, and, anyway, and so, he's got the same view of you in terms of the anti-Trump majority. Yeah, no, no, no. He and yeah. I have very, yeah. and, and I actually haven't spoken to him during this entire period. Right? It's interesting. He came to a very similar place as I did, just looking at data. Right? And so, I will say this issue, Ryan. I'm really glad that you raised this because one of the things that my little group has been going back and forth on this morning is that is this actually an election that wasn't nationalized? You know, is this actually defying all of our understanding about how modern media works, where this isn't actually a nationalized election and where you're seeing, you know, Democrats doing a little bit worse in blue states and a little bit better in red states. And and the fact that the Senate majority pack went up so so early in their advertising and also all the grassroots investment we've made that we have basically created 
media environments in these battleground states that are unlike the media environment in the rest of the country, right? Because it's not a presidential election. Yep. And so we actually could be seeing, and this is one of the most interesting things after the election we can talk about, is that is this actually a non-nationalized election? Yeah. Which is almost for those of us who believe in sort of modern media, it's almost inconceivable that that could happen. Right. The thing with the cliche these days is everything's nationalized. Right. Mayor's races are about, you know, big yeah. national issues, right. whether you love Trump or not. Right, right. <laughs> and so what's happened is that it's possible that this is actually not a nationalized election. I think the Democrats chose purposely not to nationalize it. Was that Joe, a mistake? I, I don't know. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I don't, I don't. But if, you're, if you're Abby Spanberger in Virginia, maybe that's what right. she wants. No, she exactly. wants a local election. No, no, no. There's an interesting, there was clearly a strategic choice yeah. by the Democrats not to nationalize the election, right? Yeah. And, and when you have, when you, I mean, one of the things that this Dan Constant, who was on last week and runs the McCarthy Super PAC, you know, if you listen to that, he made the point about how localized some of the races in it. And that was one thing that the national media was missing. And some of his ads were so specific. It's a piece right. of oppo research right. they found about a Democratic incumbent that it's nothing to do with like some of the big national issues, and they just hammer them. An environment where you're, tell me if you think this but is correct. But we're doing the same thing, by the way. You, of course, no, no, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Right, right. So, not, so what you're saying is neither side has really tried to nationalize it. I think that they've tried to nationalize it around, around Biden, Biden yeah. being a failure, but yeah. we learned from the decoupling that that wasn't sufficient. I mean, look, I, yeah, I think yeah, one of the things that you have to wrestle yeah. with and in the interviews that you do is, let's just say the election became a couple more points Republican like three weeks ago. Yeah. What happened? Russia and Saudi Arabia raised gas prices in the United States. Gas prices didn't rise. There was an intervention by hostile foreign powers to aid the Republican Party in our election. And I think the awful reality of the fact that we now may be in our second election in recent memory, where a political party comes to power having been aided by the Russians is sort of an awful reality that we're gonna to have to work through over the next few years. And I think it's just reckless and irresponsible of journalists to not make this connection. I mean, inflation just didn't go up. Gas prices didn't just go up. They were raised by people who wanted to actually dramatically intervene in weakening the coalition against you, in Russia, right, this was a geopolitical act, right, not just a spiteful act. And so, Do you think there was a previous time in American politics where Republicans would have been as outraged by that as Democrats? Yes. And it's outrageous to me that Ronna Romney McDaniel gets up every day and blames higher gas prices on Joe Biden. She's doing Vladimir Putin's bidding at that point. She becomes an aiding and a willing a better to the genocide that's happening in Ukraine when she does that. And the entire Republican Party has become an aiding, winning better to the genocide that's happening in Ukraine. And whether they understand that or not, it's just an absolute reality because what they're doing is they're deflecting the blame from Putin for raising gas prices and raising food prices and all the other things that he's been doing, preventing the American people from understanding the nature of the conflict that we're in, going back to this thing we've been talking about. There's a lot of things about MAGA that I understand deeply that I can be sympathetic to, right? I yeah. may not agree, but I can be sympathetic to. The adoration of Putin is not one of them. And it's been the piece of their evolution as an ideological force that remains to me one of the great mysteries. I don't think it's actually easy to understand or explain that. I, I often hear people say, well, it's because Putin's a Christian nationalist and everything else. But he's none of those things, right? That's all fake and false, right? He's 
you know, one of the worst actors in human history. I think for a small set of white supremacists, there was this connection between Russia and that group. <clears throat> the larger Republican Party, like you, I don't really see the... the I think except their on performance the on what happened. Yeah. Look, the Republican Party has been overtaken by extremism and extremists, and I think that that what happens if they win either chamber or both, what happens to our political discourse, what happens to our democracy. I don't like the term election denier because it's far too benign because it's really, it's like saying that we didn't win World War II. It, it's far more malevolent because when you're an election denier, you believe that the Democrats are criminals and they stole the election and they should be put in jail. And so you're now, it's a tool of radicalization, right? And mobilization. So I have not, really spent much time thinking about the implications of election deniers being elected and what it means for our long-term democracy because in some ways it's so depressing that I need to stay positive and stay upbeat and but I think that the awful reality of what's happened the radicalization and extremism of the Republican Party is far worse than is understood by the general public the threat to our country is real and present in front of us and it's why, frankly, I've been working so hard to try to win the election, because I think this is not a normal midterm. It wasn't a normal midterm for the political reasons we discussed. It's also not a normal midterm because our democracy may be severely weakened. The Republicans may weaken the ability for us to prosecute the war in Ukraine. I mean, a whole set of really dangerous things may happen if they win. And so... I don't view this as a typical midterm, and it isn't. And the stakes are higher than usual, which is why Simon has been tweeting like a madman for the last few months. Well, on that a more pessimistic note than you're known for right now, I'm going to say thank you for your time and for offering an alternative to a lot of the, the conventional wisdom out there. It's a good way to do our last show before Election Day. And we're going to have to gather after it's all over and, uh, and sift through the results. And let me just end by saying that one of the most interesting responses that I've gotten, and there have been many from people that used to be friends of mine, I think, is the notion that the early vote doesn't tell you anything. And as I tweeted this morning, how could it be that analyzing 30 million votes is somehow not instructive or informative to what's happening in an election when an election is about people voting? And I think that these sort of casual dismissals of the significance of the early vote has been among the laziest and stupidest things that I've seen any prominent people say during this entire election cycle. Yeah. And I'm disappointed. And my other disappointment in the media and the pundit class is that we know the Republicans are flooding the zone, right? We know this is happening. I shouldn't have been the one to call it out. Nate Silver, the person who actually did call it out, let's be clear, was Nate Cohn on Monday in the New York Times openly discussed the flooding of the zone. He used the term flooding the zone, which is the term I've been using. I think he stole it, appropriated it for me. It's fine. But Steve Kornacki and Nate Silver and many other people who do this for a living should have called out what was happening because it was unprecedented. There's never been dozens and dozens and dozens of polls being flooded all at the same time by a bunch of unnamed, unheard of pollsters that we've never, in organizations that nobody's ever heard of. It shouldn't have been me. They had a responsibility as journalists and people who are on television who are instructing the American people about the election. They should have done it. And I'm, I'm really disappointed in a lot of the people that I really admire and look up to, frankly, to get guidance from them about what's happening in our elections. I've lost some of my own personal faith in the integrity of this entire process, to be honest. 
and we have to figure out how to restore that for the health of the country. All right, Simon, thank you very much for your time. Ryan, but it's also, great to see you, by the way, after all these years. I know, it's been a while. I know, I know. No, it's been good, but you're, yeah. always up, you're always up to something, so it's always yeah. interesting to, to <laughs> chat. Every cycle, you've got an yeah. interesting project, so I, even if we're not... Because uh, I get bored easily. Even if we're not constantly talking, I'm, I'm yeah. following what you're working yeah. on. But wait, just one final thing, and we may or may not include this. As someone who talks to a lot of Democrats, what's your view of uh, the structure that Biden will use to make this decision after the election? Do you think the success in the midterms makes it more likely that he runs again? A much larger loss than anyone's predicting means he retires? What's your view of what he's going to do and how he's going to make the decision? I've always believed that the more successful he is, the more likely it is that he'd retire. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because he goes out a winner. And I think that the fact that he was able to get so much legislation passed means that it's more likely he doesn't run again because he cemented his legacy. If he still was had things he needed to do, yeah, then he would have fought and potentially stayed on. I don't know what he's going to do. I think it's yeah. a tough decision, um, but it's his decision. And I think the Democrats are going to give him a lot of space to make that decision. I don't think he'll get challenged in the primary. I, I would be surprised. Well, Bernie Sanders um, has said he's supporting him, so that seems to like be a pretty good endorsement to have in his yeah, pocket. Yeah, I, I think, I think the challenge is going to come from the left, right? No, I, it yeah. also could come from governors. I mean, I think it could come from people who are not think- part of the Washington world that's close to Joe, right, who's known him for 30 years. And, there could be governors. I won't name any of them. But I, mean, you're talking, I mean, Newsom is the one that's obviously made the biggest splash recently. I think it could be somebody who's not tied to Washington that yeah. could make a challenge. Is Newsom so it's not category? it's not an ideological challenge. It's some other insider outsider challenge. Generational. A, yeah, generational. Right. I think that there becomes a different. Yeah. I, and I still think there's a high possibility that happens, but I, we just don't know. And I think yeah. a lot will depend on what happens over the next few weeks, what happens with the war, what happens with the economy. I mean, if we start going into significant recession early next year, it's going to be much harder for him to run. Because it will be harder for him to um, prevent a challenger? His approval rating will go down so far that he just becomes vulnerable. And I don't know that that's going to happen. But I, I mean, my own view is that the scenario that probably makes it likely that he gets challenged if he wants to stay. Yeah is if we go into recession early next year. And if we don't, I think he's got, you know, he's got a stronger case to make, right, to, for running for re-election. But look, I think he has been a really good president. I think he hasn't gotten the credit he deserves. Yeah. I think he's showed remarkable ambition, given the sort of the insane nature of how when he came to the White House after an insurrection and COVID and supply chain problems and all this other stuff. Joe Biden kept his head down, was a workhorse, not a show horse, and really left the country far better than he found it. I mean, the, the bills that we passed at the end, chips and infrastructure and and the climate bill are going to you know, be engines of growth for this country for decades. One thing that seems to cut against him retiring is that giving up the enormous benefits of incumbency and opening up a big, messy Democratic primary where everyone who's ever thought about it is going would, would run. Because no, nobody's scared of Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, frankly. Right. That's a pretty big trade-off. 
incumbent president, even in a recession and maybe a little unpopular, versus massive, messy, intra-party warfare and giving up the power of incumbency? I, I think anyone who's been in this business and been through presidential campaigns... Most presidents get reelected. Right. I think anyone who's been in this business and been through messy, awful Democratic primaries don't view them as messy. <laughs> we view them as regenerative, that it's where parties try out new things and new ideas and new leaders and we grow yeah. and we learn and we adapt and we modernize. They're actually enormously healthy events for parties. Yeah. And um, I know that as having been through the 92 campaign, where, which I think was a campaign that really, I think, rejuvenated and revived in, uh, the Democratic Party in many ways. And so I have a different take about the primary. I think that he... You don't think it's necessarily bad for the party? I th no, I think that yeah. he can say that, you know, I've done my part, like Cincinnatus coming back from... Yeah. Uh, you know, the Roman general who came back and saved the Republic. He yeah. came in and saved the country from MAGA. Yeah, this and, is, this and is that, a new, uh, this I, is a I know new it's sound. a new thing. Yeah. He, yeah, he can, and, and that he's looking around the next generation of Democrats and man, do they look really good and that he feels confident and in passing the baton that it's going to be a successful yeah. uh, effort and that because of the quality of the leadership that's coming and that he's excited about the new generation that's coming up and that it's their turn. And then he's got to deal with the question of how to, what does he do about Kamala? Does he endorse her or not? That's a tough one. Remember, Obama set a precedent for that. He didn't endorse his successor. So I, I think that all I'll say in the, is that- Well, he wasn't president anymore though. So it's, it's I know. now, what, what did Reagan do in 88? Um, and what did Clinton do in 2000? I'm not- Clinton endorsed Gore. Clinton endorsed Gore early in the primary. Yep. It was 100% behind him. Yeah. Reagan in 88 let the primary play out, I believe. I think what I'll just say about this is yeah. that um, I think that Joe Biden, either path he takes yeah. will be a good one. And yeah. he just has to make up his mind. Because yeah. I think there's an obvious toss to the next generation if he decides yeah. not to run. Yeah. That can be sold as being very healthy. Right. And he has and talked about the bridge. And the bridge keeps getting longer. He talks about the bridge. <laughs> this was actually, I felt, one of the most emotionally powerful parts of the primary was that event he did with Pete Buttigieg, where he talked about all this, about the next generation. The endorsement event? The endorsement event. Yeah. It was a very emotionally yeah. powerful event for me. It was Joe Biden at his very best, actually. And then if he decides to stay, you know, he's going to have a very strong track record to run on. And I really believe, having been around politicians now my entire adult life, that there's one person who's going to make this decision, and, and it's him. And, it's, and I think that whatever he decides, there'll be enormous support for him. But it's his call. It's not anybody else's. You know? yeah. And you're convinced that it's not, it's not decided? I think my guess would be is that what they're doing is they're creating options for him to run. Because not running is easy. <laughs> but if he's going to run, he's got to run. And so I think they're leaving the options open, and which is what they should be doing. Because he said, look, in one of the interviews he gave recently, he said he hasn't made up his mind, right? He also said he has made up his mind, right? I think the truth is, is you know, he's got to see what happens in the election. And then, you know, he's got to have more information. He's got to see how he feels physically, right? He's got to figure out, you know, is the economy going to recession? He's a smart guy. And he's going to There's make an intelligent and informed decision. And I think he's going to make the best decision for him and for the country. And we'll all and back him, whatever he does. What's going on with his son in the Justice Department, I'm sure, weighs on it as well. If something serious happens there, that'll be a big dramatic event that will certainly weigh in to what he does. Simon's not touching that one. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for talking. Excellent conversation.
and uh, good luck on Tuesday. Thank you. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of Audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>